1: Charlie Gibson here, we welcome you back to The Bookcase. We hope we welcome you back, that you've had a chance to listen to some of our earlier podcasts with writers who we admire, and of course my partner, as always, is
2: Kate Gibson. Last episode he said he was proud of me, so I suppose I should reciprocate and say I'm proud of him too, most of the time.
1: Yeah, but you sort of slipped in proud of me sometimes, you said. said, It's (laughs) all the time, kiddo. Anyway, uh, this week we have an author who is so accomplished in what she attempts to do, at least in my opinion. And I think people will, who are students, uh, not students, that's not fair, because that makes it sound academic, who are in love with interesting attempts at literature will like this book. And I don't mean that in any way negatively. It is an author who has an incredible breadth to her abilities. The book is The Candy House. It has been out now since April. Jennifer Egan is the author. She won 12 years ago a Pulitzer Prize with a book called A Visit from the Goon Squad. And this book, The Candy House, is something of a continuation of that. But what it is is a continuation in style. The style of this book and what she is able to do is extraordinary. She
2: is, I think a renaissance writer. And I think she's a renaissance writer in a couple of different ways. She's a renaissance writer in genre. I mean, most folks stick to what they know. They write a thriller. There's good sells. They write another thriller. She has written a little bit of something for everyone. And all of them are very good she's written historical fiction manhattan beach great novel a gothic thriller which is personally my favorite of hers called the keep which if you haven't read is amazing a visit from the goon squad and candy house read like interconnected short stories so she's a renaissance writer in genre but she's also a renaissance writer in narrative style because within a visit from the goon squad and the candy house She tries a million different things in every chapter. Well, I mean, she tries one amazing thing for a chapter. So, for instance, she writes one as if it is a instruction manual. She writes uh, an entire chapter in Goon Squad as a PowerPoint presentation. There's a chapter in Candy House, which is almost all equations. She isn't afraid to try anything, and she pulls off pretty much everything
1: should mention what the premise of this novel is, which is interesting. And I thought it was all going to be a spinoff of various effects that her premise could have. It's sort of a backdrop. And then she doesn't dwell on it so much, but the premise is interesting. Premise is a time when all of your memories could be saved and retrieved, that you in a little box would be able to go back and recall what you were thinking when you were six years old, eight years old, 12 years old. (laughs) God save us when you were 15, which is the toughest, tough stage of life, but, but all your memories could be packaged and recalled. And then she puts another spin on it, which is to say, if you wish, you can make all of your memories public so that other people can go in and retrieve what your memories were. Now, is that possible? No, of course not. But it's a really interesting, well, at least it's not, is that I know that it's it's possible now, but, but it's interesting that that construct, that premise can have as many different applications as she finds in chapter after chapter. And as Katie says, each chapter is written very differently. And that is a a writer's skill that I, I, I cannot say enough about. As you read it, You have to pay attention, real attention to it, because there's just so many subtleties in it. She is a writer like none other that I have read uh, in recent years, or ever, uh, to say that. This is a very risky, high-wire act, I think, that she brings off in her book, The Candy House. Here now, Jennifer Egan. Jennifer Egan, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. This new one, The Candy House, is written around the premise of something called Own Your Unconscious. Explain what that is.
0: That is a device that lets you externalize the entirety of your memory and perceptions, beginning at the moment of your birth, into a beautiful one-foot square cube, which is available only to you uh, if you want that to be the case, and it allows you to... Peruse your past, revisit old memories from an adult, adult, contemporary perspective, uh, and all kinds of other possible. Oh, and it lets you reinfuse, uh, your memories should you have a traumatic brain injury or, you know, dementia ultimately. And there is a secondary option with own your unconscious, which is that you can also share it in whole or in part if you want to an anonymous collective. And the reason to do that is basically to get access to the consciousnesses of others who have made the choice to share there. So it's, in a way, DNA analysis would be a good analogy for this invented device. You have to give to get. If you want to know if you have relatives out there, you have to also make your results available. So that's kind of the model.
2: So the new book assumes technology that that isn't in existence yet. And yet the themes and the messages of the book, I feel like, are very much rooted in today's technology. So has the Candy House effect in a way already happened? Is it avoidable?
0: Well, I think that um, in a way it has happened. I mean, people have said, oh, this is this could happen anytime. I don't think so, because we don't understand how the brain really works. So the idea of creating technology to replicate all of the brain's functions, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a thought experiment, really. But I think the reason it feels familiar is exactly as you say. It, it is a feeling we already have, a lot of us, about the Internet, where there's an enormous amount of information about all of us swimming around. So it feels familiar, but it's also ludicrous. <laughs> I don't think it could actually happen. And I love that combination. I love to write in that in the middle of a paradox that includes something that's outrageous and inconceivable, but also feels oddly logical and possible.
2: It's interesting because it also gives you some freedom with the storytelling. Because characters can access other people's stories, they can, in effect, authentically tell somebody else's story. Playing with narrative perspective seems to be a very big part of your work, talking through all sorts of different voices in different ways. Is that what has, because I know you're a journalist as well, is that what draws you to writing fiction? I think what
0: draws me to writing fiction is the experience and, and to reading fiction, by the way, the experience of being inside the minds of other human beings. To me, that is the single thing that fiction does that nothing else has quite been able to do. Um, You know, anything that's image based is not doing that by definition. We're looking at the outside and trying to infer what's going on inside. It's, it's inherently performative, but fiction partly because it lacks images works at a deeper brain level, I think, and actually gives us that experience that we will never have in real life of actually seeing the way another consciousness organizes reality. And you're quite right, Kate, to note that in a way, the real motivation behind this machine that I invented actually fairly late in the process of writing this book is that it gave me narrative license (laughs) to do whatever I wanted in the course of the book and what I wanted to do was go very deeply and and almost in moments invasively inside people's deep consciousness and have the collision of these different consciousnesses add up to one story. So I'm creating, I guess, my own collective, if you will, in the course of writing the book.
1: It's interesting to me when I started this and when I read the first chapter and got a sense of what the invention own your unconscious is and conscious Unconscious sharing, which, as you point out, is an option for many of the characters. I, 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 thought it was going to be an exploration of what this invention could do to society, but, but it really isn't. Which, as is, I came to find, really fascinating. You own your unconscious is just sort of a backdrop for a series of stories that you tell, and you kind of avoid the issue for the most part, not entirely, but you 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 somewhat avoid the issue of whether this kind of technology could be constructive or destructive.
0: Well, I personally am not very interested in reading fiction that seems to be teaching me a lesson. And as, because I am a journalist, I always have the option of engaging with the outside world through writing in a way that is more, um, exploratory in terms of benefits and, and deficits, let's say. But in when I'm writing fiction, I'm much more interested in asking questions than answering them. And I, I don't think I would have been moved to write about a machine of any sort if I didn't feel somewhat beguiled myself by its possibilities. You know, some of the things that this machine allows people to do are things that I have fantasized about myself. So that's one wish that led me to it. Another is you know thinking about people i knew as a kid and wondering about their lives which i wasn't able to see clearly through the eyes of a child but i think i would see very differently as an adult wishing in essence that i could review my own memories and of course the the way in which this is somehow not a little silly on some level is what does it even mean to review memories it, you know what is memory it's a construction already so that's in a way why i don't go too deeply into the technology itself, the book is not really about that. And by the way, this is not a new idea. You know, in, in the world of sci-fi, the idea of consciousness externalizing has been around for a long time. So I would not even presume to make a meaningful contribution to that literature. I was using it for my own narrative purposes.
2: So you you also play with a lot of different narrative techniques. You have a, a chapter in both Goon Squad and Camp. House. You have a chapter in Candy House that's written almost entirely in like authoritative directive. You have an epistolary through text and email. You have a chapter in Goon Squad that's written entirely in chart and graph. So what I want to know is, <laughs> where do you come up with those wacky ideas? But also, have you ever tried an experiment like that? where you're like, no, this didn't work. I tried it. I thought it could work. It didn't work. I mean, how do you know it's working and that the reader will go along on that experiment with you? Great
0: questions. I'll start with whether it always works it almost never works.
3: <laughs> it's, it's an amazing gift
0: when it works, <laughs> because it's really hard to tell stories in some of these odd forms. Basically, the way it starts is, you know, I'm always looking for ways to use everything around me to write fiction. So my mind is always asking. For example, someone was telling me yesterday about how their grandmother used to make quilts, and each quilt told a different little story. And I immediately thought, Putting quilt on my list. So I have a list and some of the ideas on it are kind of silly. One of them was I want to structure a story like the song paper boats by the band, not a surf. So I, I just get these ideas and I keep lists. And then I have, I have like, I'm not kidding. I have 800 lists on my iPhone. Obviously some of them are obsolete, most of them. Anyway, so I gather up ideas of things I might want to use. And meanwhile, I'm, I'm thinking about other things and, wondering about characters I might want to pursue here or there. And the most important thing that I'm keeping in mind is what times and places feel really alive to me, because that is actually my entry point to fiction. It's not abstract ideas. It's not even characters. It's not plots. No way, because you don't have a plot without characters. It's times (laughs) and places that feel alive and that I want to inhabit. And so I have to wait for a period when somehow these formal things that I want to try, let's say PowerPoint from Goon Squad, seem to align with some time and place that feels rich. And it might have an intimation of characters, too. But nine times out of 10, I start writing that and it feels like it's going nowhere. And what that feels like is very specific, because if a form is right, It should make me feel free. There should be a sense of opening up, like, oh, I can do anything using this. Mm. But especially Mm. with very limited forms (laughs) that come often from other more practical realms of life, like PowerPoint or Twitter. There's a chapter in um, the Candy House that I wrote for Twitter. In those cases, Very often what I feel is a sense of great constriction, like there's no I can't move around. I can't tell this story in this form. So if that starts to happen often, I can't even get started. I mean, there's just nothing going on. But sometimes I I really persist because I'm a big believer in writing badly and making it better. <laughs> so I'll kind of slog along. But in the end, it's just so obvious, you know, it's alive or it's not alive. And the last thing I'll say about using kind of unusual forms. So, for example, the email chapter in the candy house is that when I find that correct combination of story and form, The reason that it's actually working and giving me that feeling of freedom as I go forward is that I have found a story that can only be told that way. And that is the key. If it's something that can be done in a different way, it is sure not going to work in PowerPoint. Why? (laughs) But if I find something that requires Let's say, one hundred and forty character structural units. That is exciting. And the reason it's exciting for me personally is that i'm I'm actually doing something I could not otherwise have done. So it's the form is giving me a way to stretch myself as a writer. But there's a lot of waiting, and there's a lot of trial and error. And there are things I'm still tr- waiting and and trying to do, and so far have failed,
1: <laughs> well, as Katie points out, it's it's an incredibly, Incredibly ambitious novel. Every chapter written from a different character's perspective, but, and that's difficult, but it's not unheard of. But almost every chapter, as Kate points out, is written in a different style. She's mentioned a couple of them. I am writing tweets in two columns. The one that absolutely blew me away was that you wrote one based on mathematical formula. And I thought, how did she do that? But I got the sense in all of this, you talk about how hard it is. I got the sense you were having fun. Can I pull this off? Can I make it true to this style? Because it's not easy, but it's fun, it seems to me, to explore as a writer.
0: It is so much fun. I mean, if I had to pick one word to describe everything about what I hope to do as a writer and the reason I like to read, it is Fun. I see it as entertainment. My goal is to have fun and to provide fun. And I think there is a kind of joy in finding something that really shouldn't work and is kind of ludicrous like powerpoint for fiction but also feeling like yeah but it kind of is working in this case so it there is a kind of delight in it and the mathematical chapter i had an absolute ball with i mean part of it is that i myself am very unmathematical um <laughs> i didn't get past trigonometry sophomore year of high school so to to think about uh, a guy who's being paid to describe plot elements in in contemporary culture using algebra, <laughs> his job is to create a gigantic algebraic system that can describe every kind of action you would see in a movie, for example. And then he starts to find, guess what? He's starting to think of his own life in these algebraic equations. I find that kind of hilarious. So there's a kind of humor that's inherent ideally, in finding a story that can only be told in this strange way and then telling it and feeling like this shouldn't work. And yet, because I'm telling such a strange story,
2: it feels like it is working. So I have two sort of Jennifer Egan pictures in my head when it comes to Goon Squad and Candy House. And it comes to, okay, I finished it. Now I have to figure out how to organize it. I have a picture of you standing in front of a giant corkboard with pieces of yarn running everywhere. Or sitting on your floor with piles of papers, moving them around in different places. Are either one of those correct? I mean, because your your chapters go from the past to the present to the future to and they're all sort of mixed up. How do you know how to organize your arc? That
0: is the hardest thing about books like this. And you piles of paper, you nailed it. There is a point where I have to look at it spatially. With a visit from the Goon Squad, I actually had a misconception about how the structure would work. I actually thought it would have a backward chronology. So as I worked, I was comforted by that because chronology is you know a very steadying element <laughs> to have in our in our realities and in our fiction. When I read the book in that order, I found that it was really unsuccessful. It was losing energy, not gaining energy. So I was huh. f- forced to let go of chronology and organize a visit from the goon squad around curiosity and with the candy house i knew that i i was not going to be using chronology because that had not worked before i tried to look at Spatially at the relationship among the chapters. And the real question I'm asking is not even how should I organize exactly, but what is the larger story that this material is telling me? And then answering that question would impact what else I would try to write. Because my, again, my method is so improvisational at the beginning. I write my first drafts by hand. I have nothing more than a time and a place in my mind. And I kind of, dig into that and wait for people to show up, follow them improvisationally into whatever they do. And that becomes my plot. So my first drafts are really a mess, but I'm looking for rich material that I can shape. And then I take stock of it. I do make an outline. And then I go back into the more intuitive mode and try to reenter the material and see what else I can get it to do. So looking at those piles of paper and asking what does this feel like it is, is actually part of the writing process, because that would push me toward other possibilities in the writing itself.
1: My favorite chapter, Jennifer, is the guy who decides at random times just to shriek at the top of his lungs in public for no reason at all and and find out what the reactions of people are going to be. And And, and people don't know in today's society how to react to strange occurrences like that. Have you ever encountered somebody like that? Or where did that idea come from?
0: You know, that is such a, I don't exactly know. I think that, again, as so often, it begins with my curiosity about something. So, I had a lot of fun with Alfred, (laughs) my character, who decides that it is so critical to him to experience authentic responses from the world around him, that he has to find a way to do it without hurting people. Because, you know, obviously, if you you know if you harm someone or create a real disaster y- yes you get very authentic responses but he's a, he's a good guy he doesn't want to do that and he has this idea that if he screams at the top of his lungs people will respond and of course they do but it's a problematic thing to engage in and try to have you know a family relationship and a romantic relationship and so that's what he's grappling
1: with i have a couple of questions to come back to the plot device i guess of own your unconscious because it's fraught with danger And you know that there's a chapter in which a young woman who treasures the memory of a trip that she took with her emotionally distant father, only to find out when exploring his unconscious that that he considered the trip unnecessary, unpleasant, considered her a nuisance. And one sentence I wrote down, what if, like those vile moments inside her father's mind, the truth disappoints? It is so fraught with danger to be able to explore the unconsciousness, not only of yourself, but of others.
0: For sure. I mean, I think that's, again, why, you know, there there are moments where I look at a kind of gritty result that a machine like this might have in people's lives. And the truth is, although I think we fight against our solitude and a lot of what I see on social media is a desperate wish to be known, in a, in a really deep way to expose oneself in a way that will result in less solitude. But there's just no way around the solitude that we have as humans. And, and while we crave access to, you know, authenticity, deep thoughts of other people, I'm not convinced that we actually want that. Because <laughs> and so it was it was interesting narratively to explore what that would really be like for people and in fact
2: it's pretty painful. I've heard you talk about the fact that you were not an overnight success. Yours was a a trudging success, a hard-fought success. Was there a moment where you thought Yeah, I'm okay. I'm going to be able to do this for a living.
0: Well, did feel trudging at times, as I think any career arc does in moments. I actually feel really grateful that I didn't have early stardom because I think especially as a fiction writer where what we have to do is create worlds and there's a certain amount of mental freedom that is just essential to that undertaking and self-consciousness and fear of failure and... Desire to please are, I think, at least for me, very unhelpful spurs. In fact, I think those feelings, those worries, and that self consciousness are inhibitors. And I think if I had had early success and felt the pressure to please and repeat that success, I think it would have been hard for me to keep getting better.
1: I am so pleased that you joined us, Jennifer Egan. I really appreciate it. It's a fascinating novel to read and fascinating to hear your background behind it. All the best. Thank you for joining us.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank
2: you for having me. So, Rapid Fire, most influential book in your life? Probably The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton,
0: because she succeeds on every level. The sentence, the paragraph, uh, it's a it's a really visceral look at impossibility of trying to live as a solitary female in, a, a, in American society at that time, which was the turn of the 20th century. It's funny. It's actually a tragedy in in the Greek sense. It makes me cry every time I read it. And I've read it so many times and I read it differently every time I read it. I've taught it to undergraduates and they loved it. And so it meets the criteria of just being vibrant and exciting and useful from every angle and in every context.
1: Book or e-reader or audio?
0: Uh, Book and audio. I would describe myself as an audio addict. And I think I read maybe five times more than I used to now that I also listen to audio because I am reading books while doing everything that I do in my life unless I'm interacting with people or reading a physical book. So I am listening to audiobooks while cooking, domestic chores, walking, you name it. Do you spend more time reading or writing? reading for sure. Ideally, I'm reading, you know, again, because of audiobooks, I'm now able to read almost all the time. So for example, I just took a 52 hour train trip from Chicago to San Francisco. I'm exploring a lower carbon footprint book tour, long time, 52 hours. And I thought, oh, I'll do so much reading and writing. I could not look away from the window because the scenery was absolutely extraordinary going through the Rockies. Amazing. But I did read the entire time because I was also listening to an audiobook. So I'm reading all day long now.
1: Favorite book to read to your kids?
0: Oh, boy. I, I guess I would have to say Lavender's Blue, which is an old collection of nursery rhymes that is beautifully illustrated. And it was actually recently reissued, I think, by Oxford University Press just Beautiful drawings. I love nursery rhymes because they connect us to human life at really different moments in human history. I mean, these are old. A lot of these we're going back centuries. And so sharing that with my kids and reading them again and again and again and again, as one does, was it just felt like a really formative experience with a book.
2: If you're reading a book and you don't like it, do you put it down or do you finish it anyway?
0: I absolutely put it down. I feel like it's supposed to be fun. And when I say fun, I include, you know, as I said, the house of birth, I'm weeping copiously. That's fun. It's not that I have to always be, you know, smiling, but if I don't feel engaged and I don't care about what's going to happen, that's a sign that the book is failing. And I say that as someone who sometimes writes stories that I feel that way about, and that's when I abandon them. We have to care enough to want to know what happens. And if we don't, it's not working.
1: And finally, in five words, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, Feel free to use a pencil and paper. John Irving needed one. Yeah, I might have to do that.
0: (laughs) Does it have to be a sentence? Nope. No. Okay. Uh, Full of love and productivity.
2: Our conversation with Jennifer Egan, a writer that I just love. I I think one of the things that I took away from this book, uh, Dad, before I asked for your thoughts, is that no, we're not at a point where you can download your consciousness. And that idea may seem fantastical. But by God, if social media doesn't feel like a halfway point on its way there, I can share every memory and thought that I have every second that I have it. And I can see everything from anybody's perspective I kind of want that bothers to put it out there. And so in a way, we're getting into this fantastical area. And it's
1: I mean it's a double edged sword. It's a little scary. It sure is a double-edged sword. And and it's one reason that I don't, for the most part, participate in social media because I don't want to know what people are thinking every second of their day. Now maybe that makes me an old fogey, but but I, I'm not apologetic about it. This modern fixation, I guess, of saying, of putting every thought down and letting people know what you're thinking, uh, it's 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 somewhat close to what she's talking about. I think if you really appreciate skill in writing and the ability to take different outlooks and meld that all into separate chapters that come together as a really compelling novel, I think you will like this. Anyway, Jennifer Egan, very, very interesting writer, and as Kate says, has written so many different kinds of books. She mentioned The Keep. She mentioned Manhattan Beach. Those are very different novels, but this is a very idiosyncratic novel. Oh uh, that she's written here, The Candy House, and we recommend it strongly.
0: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a
2: morning television producer.
1: One of the things that we have done each week, if you have been listening, is talk to an independent bookstore somewhere around the country. But this is our 11th podcast. And Kate and I thought it might be interesting if we talked about a little bit between ourselves. So apologies to the independent bookstores this week. We'll get back to it next week. We'll talk a little bit among ourselves about what we've learned in in 10 podcasts and why we think this has been such an interesting experiment. More interesting, actually, I think, Kate, than then we thought it would be when we started out. Uh, we were sort of
2: amazed as we did research on how to do this, that there was no one way to make a podcast. And we talked about how many ways there are to make a podcast. And we said, I bet that's probably true of writing. But man, as we have talked to writers, it's really stood out to me. Um, you know, Shelby Van Pelt uh, wrote Remarkably Bright Creatures from a Writing Exercise about an Unusual Perspective. Claire Stanford design happy for you all around. Evelyn Kaminsky Kamamoto as a character. John Irving starts with the last sentence and goes backwards. There is no one way to do it. So that's one thing I've learned. Another thing I've learned. I'm sorry. I'm going to take. I'm going to answer this as a two parter. I find that. That This is really encouraging to folks who want to try writing, too, by the way, that, that there's no one way to do it. It's encouraging. There's no one way to do it. So give it a shot. You asked John Irving whether he was compelled to write, whether it's just in him. Every single writer that we've talked to, I think, has either implied or said outright that they can't— I'm going to use a double negative here. Sorry, English teachers everywhere—that they can't not write.
1: It's 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 in them it's in their DNA. When we asked Niall Williams is it is it in the DNA of Irish writers because there are so many great Irish writers? He said well it's in my DNA for sure. You know when we started this the reason I I was excited about it when Kate suggested it to me is that there is no craft, no talent, no gift that I admire more than writing. It's hard. It is a really hard thing to do for For 35, 40 years in journalism, I I never wrote anything longer than a minute 40 or two minutes because that's the way you write for television. Somebody who has to write a novel, my goodness. Katie mentioned some of the styles that writers have talked about in these earlier podcasts. The one that most fascinated me actually was Niall Williams, who said, I just start with a sentence. And it's a little bit like a thread that has gone through the eye of a needle. And it is my job to take that thread. And just pull it a little further and a little further each sentence. When you read his novels, I, I can see that in him because, as we talked about, his novels meander, but in a delightful way. And that's what makes his prose so compelling. It's just, it's been very interesting to see how differently writers who feel it's in them to write, how differently they go about doing what they do.
2: Absolutely. I think for me when I finish a great book my reaction is almost always the same which is boy I wish I could have coffee with that writer to find out the way they think the way they speak is their sense of humor really this character's sense of humor do they really think this Well that's what we're that's what we're doing now we're having that's what I'm saying and no, there's no coffee but There's no coffee but it's it's so cool so I just wanted to say that it's so it's, it's amazing that I finally get to do what I've always wanted to do which is find out how a little bit how their mind works and how their process works.
1: We should talk a little bit about what our psychology and all of this is. Somebody asked me the other day, are you going to do politics? We're we're going to avoid politics because it's so divisive. And we want everybody to listen to this. And really what we want is to excite people to read. So others have said to us, well, if you're not going to do politics, are you going to just do novels? No, we'll do nonfiction when it comes. I'm very interested to do uh, biographies. I love biographies, and we're going to do some of those in coming weeks. They've said, are you going to do children's literature, young adult literature? Yes, we're going to do all of that. Poetry? Sure. The The palette is endless. When you just come to books, we've grappled with the issue of, let's say we have a really interesting interview and we don't like the book. Well, it's an interesting question because inherently in what we're doing is talking about books that that we think you want to read or might want to read. We at least want you to give consideration to that. So we've had sort of what we call a one house veto. Kate reads it. I read it. And if one of us thinks no, then no, it's not going to be done. Both of us have to say yes, that we think this book is both worthy of people's reading and worthy of a good conversation.
2: Yeah, we want to take this book as seriously as we would taking a book and pressing it into a friend's hands and saying, read this and come talk to me after you've read it. That's how we look at that one house veto. An interesting story is great, but there's a bar that it has to reach for us to love it the way that we do and put it on the show. We wanted to take a moment to ask each other rapid fire questions since we do rapid fire every day on the show. So I'm going to start because I
1: want to. Okay. (laughs) I must say, you've just sprung it on me when we were planning this podcast. I didn't realize we were going to do the rapid fire questions. So I haven't thought through some of these. I'll I'll try to do it as we go along. Go ahead.
2: (laughs) Whereas I got ahead and I wrote stuff down ahead of time. So anyway, (laughs) number one, most influential book in your life.
1: I think the books that are most influential are books that I have just loved the ability of the writer and their prose. I loved Pat Conroy's books. I loved each and every one of them just because of his gift with a sentence. I have loved John Irving's ability for storytelling, which I think is magnificent. So, is that influential? Have they changed my life? No, I have just loved reading every word. And when people ask me, what's the favorite book that you ever read? I always say, Charlotte's Web, which I just think is wonderful. That last sentence about, you know, having a friend who's a great writer. Wilbur had both with Charlotte.
2: Book, e-reader, or audio?
1: Oh, book. Um, When I'm traveling, e-reader. I haven't gotten enough into audibles, because when I'm listening to audibles, I fall asleep. Um, (laughs) So that's a product of age, I think. But, oh, no, book. Book, 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 book.
2: Favorite time to read?
1: Anytime. Any, any time.
2: Do you write in longhand or computer?
1: Uh, I'm of an age when my longhand writing is illegible. (laughs) So, so it's computer.
2: It's really nice of you to imply that your writing was ever legible. (laughs) Revered book you wish you hadn't read.
1: I took a great course at Princeton in the English novel, and we spent three weeks on Ulysses. When we were on Good Morning America and George said his favorite book of all time was Ulysses, because it was taught so well by one of his professors at, I think at Columbia, made me think, oh, there's something wrong with me. And I've always thought there's something wrong. This is the greatest novel, supposedly, the greatest English novel ever written, is it? I don't know. I I just, I I found it impenetrable. Books still on your bucket list. All the Patrick O'Brien books on seafaring. And there are Dickens books that I have not read (gasps) that I really want to read. There are Dickens books
2: you have not read? If you're reading a book and you don't like it, do you finish it anyway or do you put it down?
1: Nope. Put it down. My guiltiest reading pleasure is I don't I don't have one. I know we've asked that of a number of people. I don't really have one because because it's it's a very important choice that you make when you decide what you're gonna read. You're gonna you know commit 10, 12, 14 hours to this. So I, I can't say I ever pick up something and think, oh, I shouldn't be reading this. Well, well, there's one. There's one, and I know what you're thinking about. I did read Fifty Shades of Gray. I'm not proud of it. But I wanted to feel what the phenomenon was about, so I read it. Sorry. It feels really strange to follow up a conversation about Fifty Shades of Grey with this question. But in five words,
2: <laughs> in five words, describe what you want the rest of your life to be.
1: Daughters, grandchildren, and meaningful times.
2: Oh, and I missed one question. If you hadn't been a journalist, you would
1: have? Oh, so many things. I would love to have been a baseball player, uh, and I would love to have played an instrument in a symphony orchestra. Both of those are are actually similar because they involve such teamwork. What I had in television journalism was the same thing. The teamwork that was involved every day in getting Good Morning America on the air. There were so many people who worked 22 hours and handed us their efforts at 7 a.m. in the morning and said, make us proud that was to me the ultimate teamwork when i was doing world news when i was anchoring world news i would go down into the area where pieces were coming in from around the world and i would suddenly realize you know there's a sound man in germany or there's a photographer in australia or there's somebody out in los angeles uh there's so many people who worked on that show and the fact that i had a chance to represent them uh, so any job really that involves the kind of teamwork of making a beautiful music in a symphony orchestra in playing a baseball game 162 times a year when you're one part of that team or doing television journalism so i would say if, if i didn't do what i'd done symphony orchestra or a baseball team and i've got a gotcha question favorite moment of the podcast so far Oh, there's so many, Kate. Huh. I, I can I can cite you an, a favorite moment from each one, but but if you want me to cite just one, I, I just mentioned Niall Williams, who was our the first book that we talked about, uh, and that moment about how he writes, pulling the thread through the needle, was a, was to me a, a wonderful image, and I love talking to Oprah when we started, and I love the moment that she said to you, "I'm going to take your suggestion of looking at my reading life as kind of my biography." And ordering and keeping track of what I've read, uh, so that I know what stage of my life and what I was thinking when I read that book. I thought that was, that was lovely of her just to, uh, to be open to something like that. Let me do it to you. Uh, most influential book in your life? Prayer for Owen Meany
2: by John Irving made me a reader. um, And that's shaping everything I'm doing right now. So I got to say that.
1: Book, e-reader, audio.
2: Book, but I have to say during the pandemic, I became more half and half book and audio because I have a phone. I take it with me everywhere. So I'm doing dishes. I'm listening to a book. I'm folding laundry. I'm listening to a book. I'm making the bed. I'm listening to a book. So it allows me to consume twice the books in the same amount of time.
1: Your favorite time to read?
2: Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> I love my kids so much, but when I get them down <laughs> and they're <laughs> asleep, um, and I can just read, and the house is quiet, I love that.
1: If you had not done in your life what you have done, working in television production, um, what what profession might you have thought about?
2: I don't know. I, I, boy, I I really thought for a while that I might be an actor uh, or an actress. Um, But (laughs) it it is a courageous and difficult life that I was not prepared to lead. Bucket list. Uh, The Power Broker by Robert Caro sits on my shelf and mocks me with its large um, size.
1: (laughs) You finish a book if you don't like it?
2: Yes. Yes. And I have regretted that because there have been some books that I really wish I had put down.
1: And you've given some thought to the five words. What are they? Watch my kids grow up. Uh Oh, Yeah, there's great pleasure in that, still is. My kids are grown, they have kids of their own, and I still treasure watching them grow up.
2: Wait, you had you didn't ask me my, my guiltiest reading pleasure because I have an answer for that. Okay.
1: What? <laughs>
2: so I'm gonna Kate, ask myself Kate, no, the question. no, 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 hold gonna... on.
1: Kate? Yes. In these rapid fire questions, what is your guiltiest reading pleasure?
2: Preston and Child, the Agent Pendergast series. I'm 20 some odd books into it, and I can't believe I've got I can't believe I've gotten this bar. There was a scene the other day that involved severed feet and crabs, and it was disgusting. And yet I was laughing at how fabulous it was. So I that one, and, and then you could ask me about the revered book too.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the most revered book—I <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've screwed this up. The most revered book uh, that you read that you wish you hadn't.
2: Oh, the kindly ones by Jonathan Littell. It was a—it uh, uh, was a novel about World War II from the perspective of a Nazi. Big mistake. Huge. And I should have put it down, because it's a really big book. And I was like, no, Time Magazine says I have to read this, so we should read this. And then I looked it up in the New York Times afterwards, and the New York Times Review said, why would you read this? And I thought, ah! But I, I, I did. I finished
1: it. So our rapid-fire questions turned out to be anything but rapid. But, <laughs> but so be it. Um, next week, uh, we will be talking to Anna Quinlan, I believe, right, Kate? Yes. We appreciate your listening. Um, as always, we are going to cite the people who do a lot of hard work on this uh, podcast, and then at the end, we will let Jennifer Egan sign us off.
2: The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohen, Eru Ekpanobi, and Elizabeth Russo. Keep reading and keep
0: writing, because it enriches all of us to do that.